Welcome to the Elite Level Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Elaine, and this is the podcast where we explore how elite level performers think, act, and operate. If you're watching this on YouTube, I'd really appreciate you liking, commenting, sharing, and subscribing if you get any form of value. And if you're listening to this on Spotify or any of the podcasting platforms, please be sure to take a second to leave a five-star review. Now, as always, we've got an absolutely fantastic guest here this week. Vinet, it's great to see you. Thanks for having me, Alex. Absolute pleasure. Awesome. Awesome. So, Vinit, for those out there who don't know who you are, if you could tell us a bit about you in two minutes or less and some of your career highlights. Sure. My name is Vinit. I'm one of the co-founders and chief customer officer at Filtered. We're a learning technology business, which means that we go in and help large organizations usually improve the way in which they are training and educating and improving the knowledge of their workforce. It's a business that I had the pleasure of setting up with two of my friends many years ago, nearly 12, 13 years ago, at the end of the last sort of recession. So it was a bit of a scary time for us. And it's a business that's evolved from selling online Excel training courses into essentially helping large enterprise businesses today. Largely UK-based startup. And along that sort of career of mine, I've also done a few other things, dabbled in a bit of seed investment in other startups and taken a growing interest in how you know us as people can improve our game when it comes to selling or helping customers and this that, and the other so yeah there's a few of the things that i've been up to um, in the last few years awesome and uh, there was a real reason i wanted to have you come on here Vinit, because you just got a fascinating background when you look at the entrepreneurship your exposure to sales being involved in it really from both angles so through this conversation i'm really looking forward to exploring all of that before we get there maybe let's go a bit more into your your earlier life right and how you actually got yourself started you know i know you do everything from in investments and I think you were an analyst for a period of time and more so just talk to us about the the bit more of the earlier life in it sure um <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll sort of be careful about how far back I go but um I guess a big seminal part of my career was always being surrounded by having to grow up in my parents businesses right so one of four children the oldest of four my parents had all four of us within five years and then at the same time they decided to go and start up or have two businesses of their own a, a convenience store and a pharmacy in southeast london so we grew up in these two businesses we didn't, didn't have any family holidays or anything and we just saw the sheer sort of determination that our parents had growing these businesses. And that became, I think, looking back now, that has become a, a big part of you know, how I operate today and much of the influence that I take um, going into my work. So, yeah, so, so seeing that growing up was a real influence to why I wanted to get into some form of entrepreneurship or doing something on my own. And it just sort of, you know, the stars aligned when they did. And I saw a good opportunity working with some really cool and smart people and took a bit of a punt, which initially um, didn't go anywhere, right? Like it was a couple of really flat years when we first started. And then we got lucky, had a few good moments, and then we were able to grow from there. 
guess when you look at a lot of people, there's always a bit of a fear factor around entrepreneurship because one, you don't really have much of a safety blanket. And then you've mentioned in your first couple of years, things didn't go that well, right? Which for some people might be actually maybe this entrepreneurship thing isn't really for me. Let me go and find full-time work. So what was it about you that allowed you to, to push through those times, actually continue to find a way through those first two years and say, actually, no, I'm going to find a way forward and make something happen? That's a that's a really great point. It is really scary. And I was fortunate enough that when I did start, I had a very low risk life. Like I had no kids, no mortgage, no rent because I was staying with my parents. They weren't asking for rent from me. I didn't have to like contribute to any major bills. So in that sense, I could take the risk of not earning any money for at least a year or two after, you know, leaving university or, you know, if you're leaving school and not going to university. And that safety blanket was there. I had very little in savings. I mean, I had some other jobs and I had something saved up. But I, you know, I was prepared. I was able to give myself a bit of time to go out doing something. And I see a lot of other of my friends doing something similar, you know, perhaps a bit later on in life where they've worked a bit and they've got, you know, like a side hustle. They're trying something new that they want to break into. And yeah, having that little safety blanket is always helpful because it, one just takes the pressure off, but two gives you the room to explore and take some risks. So if you can do it in that way, then go for it. And I think I was just lucky enough to have done it early enough. If I was to even think about taking that same risk now, uh, you know, it'd be a very difficult thing to potentially do. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, it's not easy. Right. And I think people struggle with that balance sometimes. If you've got your nine to five and then some people say, then you use your five to nine to maybe build a side hustle, then transition. I've got other friends who have said to me, look, you've just got to go all in. Right. But I think the great thing about your story is that really you, you did go all in. And even when things got difficult, you didn't give up. You kept pushing on and you eventually found a way forward. So bring us into now that time you're, you're a couple of years in you're seeing a bit of early success after getting through that challenging period what came next after that so we initially set up the business to help other businesses right um, we thought that was the way in which we could deliver value for what we wanted to do this was 2009-2011 so like, like a really long time ago and actually the thing that that led the initial bit of growth was in an area completely different to that Groupon, you may recall, was a big thing back in those days. And we, we had a bit of a punt. We, we thought, let's, let's try and sell this product on Groupon. And it just sold like hotcakes. And so we were fortunate enough in those early first few years to be extremely successful as a very small business, not located too far from here, actually, to grow and scale our business, not have to take on any external capital or investment and use the profits that we were generating to reinvest in the thing that we did ultimately want to do, which was going back to helping businesses and, and be, being a, a, a B2B um, organization. So th that inflection point sort of happened. And we then use that as a moment to, to, yeah, to invest in, in building a business that we wanted, you know, to build. And even then that took some time that took a good few years for us to find our niche because, as entrepreneurs, especially if you're looking to sell into a B2B environment, you know, you've, you've either, you're either sort of blissfully ignorant, in which case you're seeing things with a fresh pair of eyes, which we were, 
or you've had, you know, you've been part of that world and you're seeing something new and you can take that. But we didn't have that, right? You know, what we were seeking to do, we had our own experiences of how people could train and improve within the workplace, but we'd never actually done it ourselves. So we had to learn a lot of those lessons you know, as we were building the business. And, you know, one of the most sort of valuable things that I've learned over the years is trying to get into my customers' shoes and seeing their world from their point of view rather than from my point of view. So the more that I can sort of see and breathe and live their world, the more empathy I can build with them, but also the more empathy I can have when we are building our own products, you know, creating our new ideas, trying to you know do something new and innovative so that it actually lands um, in the first place. So sorry, I, that, that, that's a fairly sprawling answer, but yeah, that, those were some of the things that were um, sort of peaking as we were um, uh, going through that journey. It's really helpful to understand that actually. And um, that last piece you said reminds me a lot about, I guess us as salespeople, how we should be thinking about things where sometimes you have sellers that are very focused on their solution being the latest, the greatest and the best. And they just insist that to customers, you need to buy this because it's just the best thing, best thing that you could buy without actually taking the time to say, what problems is this customer facing? What initiatives are they focused on for this year that we can map to? And how can I see if I can potentially help them solve some of these challenges? How can I help them unlock their own version of success, right? And it's really that shift in mindset, which I think plays a lot into what you just said there, Vinet. What I'm curious to understand with you is really what your driving factor was throughout all of this time. You mentioned that you had really a bit of a safety blanket in a way you know, you had these hard times and that element of adversity, you pushed through. What were you trying to prove? Was there anything maybe based around coming out of uh, a shadow, right? And wanting to make sure that you could leave your own legacy. Was it something completely different to that? Just help us understand that. Sure. That's a, that's a deep question for a Saturday morning. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I even fully know myself now, looking back over those years, to be perfectly honest. I think... I did want to and want and continue to want to prove to myself that I can do something new and challenging, you know, at different moments in my life and my career. That is definitely something I I personally get a bit restless when I get bored or I'm not being challenged. I remember I remember when I did an internship years ago at, at uni. Everyone would come in at night. It was an amazingly successful organization, financial institution. Everyone came in at nine. Everyone finished at five. I was encouraged to leave at five. And I was like, oh, I'm feeling a bit bored now. What do I do? And that, that for me, and it's that for me back then was something, you know, I just, I just knew in myself that I wanted a new and different challenge. And I, and I continue, there are moments, there have been moments when I, when I, when I, when I feel that. And so a big part of <laughs> getting into a startup business, trying to make it grow and turn it into something has been you know, seeking out a challenge that I know is very difficult, probably easier for others, but I know has been difficult for me and something that I want to kind of overcome and try and succeed at. So it's a very, I think ultimately it's a fairly personal thing. 
rather than yeah trying to necessarily sort of prove to others although i'm sure there's a little bit of that in in in, in me as well right <laughs> so. absolutely and it's uh, you know it's part of what we want to do on the podcast right is allow you to almost look inwardly along with sharing some of that with a wider audience so i appreciate your transparency and all of that minute as i mentioned at the beginning one of the topics big picture i really wanted to explore with you was the experience of not only you selling your own proposition to the market but also being sold too because you know a lot of what we've covered and the types of people we've had and have been sales leaders and sales professionals talking about how to you know do drive best in class uh, sales cycles but we have never really explored what it's like to be on the other end of that right as someone who's getting pitched to regularly as a CEO and co-founder so maybe just take this topic however you want but just talk a bit about what you've seen have been great examples of being a customer on the receiving end of really good sales cycles or sales professionals that have stood out to you in terms of the way that they've been able to operate and of course you don't need to mention any names sure i think that's a really important point i mean before i just dive into the examples i would encourage anyone that's in a sales role whatever the sales role or the, their capacity in selling to try and get themselves into a position where they are being sold to right i mean we're all being sold to in some way right in our personal lives but in the business context not everyone will necessarily experience that looking back you know occasionally I'll talk to our own sales people you know if I'm bringing in a, a new piece of technology have them come along and they'll experience the sort of selling cycle in the form of being sold to and for some of them it's the very first time that they've been sold something to and that that actually that that sort of made me aware as like, okay because i know i've i've benefited a lot from seeing people attempting to sell to me and then succeeding or not me feeling frustrated or not or you know in, enjoying it at times and yeah if 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 um, if you're able to in any any way shape or form especially if you're in a small organization get yourselves into a situation where you can be part of being sold to have you, you you know you can try and make that happen but in terms of like good examples i mean ultimately i think it does just come down to doing the fundamentals well right so you touched on it earlier not just pushing your product but trying to find a way of understanding the pain or the problem that that prospect is going through so that's a big thing so some of my best vendors right because they've been successful and therefore now vendor have taken the time to understand what isn't working today for me or what might not be working you know a few months down the line if we're in a particular sort of form of mode like in, in a growth mode uh, and i will sort of name shout I'll, I'll i'll call out a few so uh, um one of them is a company called hoffy they do a lot of remote services for us as a business they've been um, amazing for us during the pandemic and when they first prospected me my instinct was to hit the spam button i was like you know what i i don't want to be sold to any more of these services it's snake oil it's not as good as they uh, i i was led to believe and then i but just before i did i, I did, did, did a bit of quick due diligence um reread jordan my prospects uh, the prospects uh, so, so the seller's email 
And I was like, you know what, actually, this is probably worth looking into. And then when we got chatting, he really took the time to like understand what isn't working before even getting anywhere close to saying, this is what my product does. This is how great we are. Blah, 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 right. Like it was like, I felt like he was just hearing me out. Right. It was almost like a sort of semi counseling session. <laughs> so I think that's a really, that's a really important. Way. And, and, and you won't always necessarily get an opportunity to do that because, you know, much of what you're doing as a maybe as an SDR or someone who's prospecting just trying to even get that first you know that first call or that first meeting and then the other big thing and I, and I touched on it earlier is getting in into your customers shoes but then also spending the time to like really understand what the customer is going to get from your organization once the set the sale is closed Right. So once, you know, the contract's handed and you part, you're probably going to pass them over to some form of post sales support or customer success or whatever it might be. Spend the time, whatever role you're in selling to understand what the customer gets afterwards and, and really do that deeply and get yourself in front of those situations. Put yourself in those situations. Right. So if you're in a retail environment, get yourself behind the customer service desk. If you're in a tech sales environment, get yourself into the customer success team for a bit see and feel those those pain points and those stories because you can then use that in your selling mode to convincingly and like credibly explain what they're going to get after the deal is closed right so and that's another thing that some of the best people that have sold to me have have done right so um again I'll I'll shout out another great vendor gong who do a lot of you know sales recording stuff and there are other similar software technologies out there but they during their sales process explained to me what i'm going to get once i sign on the line and then they delivered on that and that gave me a huge reassurance and it wasn't just like a checklist of you're going to get xyz and this is like a timeline they're like you know these are the problems that you've identified. So your customer success manager is going to make sure that in the first week you're getting that back in value. And, and, you know, to the extent that the AE that was selling to me was like, and if they don't give me a shout, because we'll find a way of making it happen. So it's that kind of level of care that I've experienced being sold to from a salesperson that really reassures me that no matter what's written in the contract, there are at least a couple of people on that side who are emotionally invested in making sure that I'm successful and that our business is successful once I've once you know once the deal is closed. So those that you know, get, getting really into it, I, th- I think, is a big part of how you can be successful as a salesperson in these situations. There's a lot of gold in that, isn't it? a lot of gold. And I think for any seller out there, if you're not tuning in or haven't been fully dialed in up until this point i hope that you are now because you know hearing all of this from you know directly a customer's perspective i think it's really really telling because as sellers it can be really easy to get almost absorbed in our own world we spend a lot of time on sales process on stages how to operate deals but the reality is it's remembering that we're dealing one with humans two we need to leverage our emotional intelligence and three actually care and one of the things that i really got a lot from my time at aw US was that their number one, you know, holy star for everything was customer obsession. 
you know, everything that they do as an organization is focused around the customer. You know, do we need to take this decision or that decision? Well, what's best for the customer? And that I think that consistency and always thinking about how do we solve, how do we add value is something that really tripled down in my DNA, I guess, after spending that additional time there. And you can see why an organization like that is one of, if not the most successful business on yeah. the planet. You're 100% right there. Another way to think about it is all of that good stuff that gets drummed into you on process and frameworks and questioning techniques and all sorts. Consider that as your backstage stuff. That's the stuff that you're doing in rehearsal, right? When you're on stage and in front of a camera or in a meeting room or whatever, then you've got to flip it around and you've got to make that person feel like they're the ones that are under the limelight and it's their stage, right? And you're just like a supporting act. Don't make yourself the star. <laughs> If you're a seller, if you're doing that, you're probably not on the right track. Make your prospect or your customer feel like they're the star of the show because you're sort of serving them. And, you know, I think if you sort of take that mentality in and it takes a while to get into it, right? So if you're new to this, you might be listening to this thing, to, to what I'm saying or to what we're talking about. Like, what the, how the hell am I going to do that? And I think a big part of that is just finding ways of practicing it, seeing how other people are doing it, doing it in a safe environment, putting yourself out there and doing it, you know, recording yourself, however you want to do it. But it does take time. I think, I think, it does, I don't think it comes to people necessarily naturally, gotta, but you do have to, you know, something you do have to improve on and work on as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, tons of gems in this. So one of the topics I want to touch on with you on this same kind of theme here is actually how does someone get someone like Vinit's attention? You mentioned Jordan, your previous account manager. I think a lot of sellers will be sitting out there thinking the bit I struggle with the most is how do I get the meeting? Yeah. How do I get someone like Vinit's attention? Do I need to pick up the phone? Do I need to send a personalized email? Do I need to send a personalized video? Right. I'll maybe say my perspective on this afterwards but before i do that i want to hear from your perspective what gets your attention when with all of the noise out there yeah that's a that's a a big one i don't think there's a single method or route not to certainly for me there isn't i don't think so um if if anyone that's prospecting me is hearing this (laughs) yeah good luck So I think the things that have stood out for me are keeping it brief. I personally cannot stand receiving something long, especially if it's an email or a LinkedIn message, right? So one of the tactics that I use when I'm prospecting is, will this, will will what I want to say fit on my mobile screen? If it doesn't, no good, right? Because most of the time I'm looking at the things that I don't consider to be important on my phone when I'm doing some other things or commuting or whatever, right? And even if it's on your laptop, so that's the first thing. Keep it brief. Whatever you're doing, keep it brief. So therefore, focus really on the few important things that you absolutely need to say and just stick to that. So that's the first thing. Second thing is relevant reference points. So if, if and you won't always be in this situation, if you've got some of your prospects, competitors, or other similar organizations or businesses using your services, name drop. Because it just gives me some confidence that this is kind of relevant. Um, not necessarily because I want to do what my competitors are doing, but okay, some reassurance, right? It's not just something that's out of the blue. And then the third thing is make it easy for me to say no. <laughs> so what actually becomes quite off-putting is being part of a sequence, right? Like 
maybe three or four years ago, it was a smart thing to do, but now everyone's part of a sequence and and it smacks of sort of desperation and people just see straight through it, right? So first thing I go through, you don't get a response, maybe drop in a second one if you th- if you feel like you've got something here for them because you've really done your research, you've got a bit of an in. But if it's just going to be part of a of a sequence, you might want to think twice about how long that sequence becomes if they're just not getting any value from you, right? And then maybe there is a a fourth one, and that is, and again, I use this very tentatively, if, it's a big if, if you've found something about your prospect where, you know, you've uncovered some issue and you've got a compelling kind of story, testimonial or case study that does actually fit what they're talking about, then maybe then, then push that in. But I think that's rare. I think it's actually quite rare in the very early stages right? because you just don't know enough at that point. It's yeah. So you might get lucky and they might have been talking about an issue somewhere else and you've picked up on that. Great. You know, you can use that. But if you're going to go about it in a fairly generic sense, like you're a startup co-founder. I've just seen you've done a raise sort of a couple of years ago, isn't it great for you? You know, what about these growth opportunities here and, you know, finding new talent, et cetera. Mm, You know, you've just, you haven't done your research, unfortunately, you've run a few filters in a sequencing platform and, you know, so there's, you're you're, going to get a low response rate. So, yeah. It's good. uh, Really good for all of us to hear this actually, because um, the term personalization has become, is running rife at the moment. I almost feel like it's a bit of a buzzword. And uh, I think a lot of people see the type of template that you just described as personalization in a way where, you know, you've been able to find some kind of hook of a fundraise or something like that. So I think hearing that from your perspective is, is interesting, right? It's not personalized unless you've actually written it yourself. So it's all well and good if you're part, if you, you know, I, I, all four, you know, sequences, don't get me wrong, right? Like they have their place and having a template, great, right? You want to ensure consistency and quality and make, you know, your, your, your job easy. But if you really want to make it actually personalized and that's what you care about, then take your template. Sure. That's your starting point. If that's what you need. I know I certainly do. And then tweak the hell out of it, right? Actually make it personalized. That requires the energy. So yeah, personalization is rife. It's in, in every industry, including our own in L&D. And there's personalization, there's personalization, right? So that's just my take on it. Absolutely. I, you know, I think a lot of this starts with spending a good amount of time on your ideal customer profile, right? So, you know, who are we selling to? Why are we selling to them? What problems do we solve for this space? And how can we add value? Once you understand those types of core pillars, the outreach, half the battle is actually your mindset, right? Because if you're convinced that you are selling to a space or a persona or a person where you know categorically you can solve compelling challenges for them or you can add tremendous value, to me, outreach doesn't become very difficult because I can look at you and say, Vinet, I can categorically make a difference for you. Give me some time to show you how versus being a seller that is just trying to do their numbers or hit their KPIs or meet their metrics. So they just go wide to do it. Right. Goes back to a point you touched on, which is that element of care. Right. And so I think having integrity as a seller actually makes a big difference to how you outbound and the, the passion you have when you outbound and how you go about doing it, because you really, you should be here to help. Right. And so 
I'd say that's a really big thing and it comes across when doing outreach, especially outreach where it's either video based or on the phone, because if you don't really believe in what you do, how do you really expect your customer to? How do you really expect that person to give you some time when you don't even really believe in what you're doing? Do you feel that's a fair fair comment from me? Yeah, I think so. I think I do accept it's, it is really hard. Yeah, I think outbound prospecting is possibly one of the hardest things any business has to do, period, right? And I know, I know when I was first uh, hitting the phones for our own business in those early days, in the, in the, when we were out in the wilderness with this unknown startup and we were trying all sorts of things. And I just couldn't understand why no one would want our like free benchmarking report. And it's like, it's, it's amazing. We're going to do all this work for you for free. Like, why wouldn't you want it? <laughs> it's like, it took me a good long time to realize. Actually, I don't think our customers actually care about that because they've got a long inbox full of all sorts of other issues that they're facing. And it took us a long time. It took me a long time to realize that what you think your customers and your prospects problems are, are actually quite different to what they think they are. And even if they identify with those problems, like how high up the entry or the inbox or their list of priorities is it really? And as a, and again, as a, as a prospector, as a seller, trying to identify those where it's, it's an increasing problem or it's at the top doing, being able to do that from, yeah, oh yeah, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. That's, that's a bit of an issue for us. You know, those sorts of conversations may not get you that far. They might help you build pipeline over time, but you, know, you, you, you're going to have to um, put your energy into the ones that where the problems are increasing or, or high up. And that's, that's important. So I think I would agree with everything you would say and just add to that. If you're able to, as a seller, to identify those where the problem is growing in importance or really high up already, double down on those, of course. But those will be a fraction of your pipeline. <laughs> so, you know, you're just going to have to live with the fact that you're probably not going to have as many of those because you know just not as many people will be there at that moment in time yeah i think that's that's the bacon hot leads as we like to call them right where you can find your solution and the timing and everything just marries up but yeah. it's uh it's not as common as maybe a lot of people would hope it would be so Vinet, let's um just shift gears here slightly and, and talk a bit more about the entrepreneurship piece and really your experiences trying to build grow and scale your own organizations or some of the other ones you've been involved with historically i'm sure that in itself has its own challenges and some parts that are really fun and exciting and dynamic so just as as a founder, you know, how would you talk about your experiences being a founder? I, I guess the good, the bad, and the indifferent. <laughs> the good, the bad, and the indifferent. I think in in all of those scenarios, whether it's me as a founder or where or where I've been fortunate enough to be able to invest in and back some really exciting teams and products, the single biggest challenge has always been traction maintaining traction and then you know maintaining traction some more right so it's it's terribly cliched but growth solves all problems so when you're growing as an organization against whatever metric that matters to you usually that momentum in itself does solve a lot of other problems we've been through those phases enough times now over the 13 years of our journey and i've sort of seen it a good number of times in other organizations where when that happens 
you know, all of your other problems they don't go away, but they become a lot easier <laughs> to worry about, to think about, to try and solve for. That is definitely like on the good, the bad and the ugly side, because it touches on all of that. I mean, there's, there's so much more to, to say there. So, and again, I can only really speak from my own perspective and from my own, from our own experiences. But when we haven't been in those modes, right, when we haven't been growing as fast as we need to, or we would like to, or that we think we should be growing, that's when we've, we, we've generally sort of looked inwards and thought, are we, what's missing here? What aren't we getting right about what we're not delivering to our customers or to the market? And usually that's become then part of a pivot to something new. And, you know, if you are a small startup business or you're, you're, you're an organization that's trying to grow, pivoting can be both incredibly exciting because it's a new thing it's a but it can also cost you a lot in terms of energy you know money resources time and so there is a real trade-off there um we went through a pretty major pivot last year and it was major because it affected our product strategy it affected our people strategy and it affected how we were if essentially seen as a vendor in the marketplace six nine months on fortunate enough to be able to sit here and say on the whole on the whole it's gone well there's definitely aspects of it that didn't go as well as we would have liked but on the whole it's gone really well but it has cost us right it's cost us in sort of time and energy and and and, and resources in other ways and but hopefully you know there's there's light at the end of this tunnel now and what we're doing now is new and innovative and and ultimately like meaningful to our market and customers so yeah, if you're operating in a small startup environment at the moment or looking to do so or trying to set one up yourself, it's a horribly cliched thing. But, you know, I, I just be prepared to go through a few pivots. So, you know, and I think that's an important thing for anyone that's looking to make a career move in that direction. Right. Either you're starting off there or you're, you know, maybe you're a bit more experienced and you're coming into a small startup environment. One of the questions that I always ask someone that's spent like a number of years in a big organization, like household name sort of place, and they're coming into our organization, like, are you ready to be sort of shaken left, right, and center every day, like as if you're on a roller coaster? <laughs> because if you're not, this may not be the place for you, you know, and it, and it will often be like that. Again, really interesting, right? Just to put ourselves in your shoes. We've spoken about going in customer shoes, but being able to be in yours right now, I think being a, a fellow salesperson, uh, there's elements of that entrepreneurship piece, which uh, feels like, you know, part of our day to day, right? Territory planning. And a lot of people describe it as being the CEO of your own territory. But I guess when we then zoom out and, and try and get into your lens of running a business, there's so many other areas that really come into play, right? So many other facets that you have to be, you know, start to consider. As you reflect over your journey, Vinit, is there any part of you where you look back and say, I would have done this differently or I would have changed this if I could rewind time? Or do you look at it and you say, you know what, I would have written this book the same way? <laughs> yeah, like a hundred things. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, there's no way that, um, you know, I or the people around me had somehow magically charted the perfect, like, you know, 
journey. <laughs> Absolutely, there's like a thousand things I would change. But at the same time, you know, to your other, to the other part of your question, you can't. It's all in the past now, right? <laughs> so the best you can do is just learn from them, try to reflect on them. Sometimes try not to dwell on them too much. That's another thing, right? Like we, a, a lot of us, whatever our past might be, the things that we've done, you know, that we may not be uh, so proud of or may feel like we should have done better or differently, can't change it now. So take it for what it is and sort of move on. So, yeah, I've tried to remind myself of that um, <laughs> when I when I can. But, yeah, there's definitely a, a, a lot of things that I would have changed. But at the same time, yeah, you've got to be able to accept that um, you can't do that now. So make the most of what you have. Absolutely. No, it's, uh, it's well said, right? And it's an interesting one because some people say they would rewrite the whole thing and others say no, because the experiences that they got and the lessons they've learned just wouldn't have been there without going through those things. Right? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, and, and, and if you catch me on a different day, I'd, I'd probably say a different answer because it all just sort of depends, I think, on how you're feeling at that moment in time and how you're rationalizing seeing your past. So yeah, on a Saturday morning in sunny Shoreditch, that's my answer. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, if we fast forwarded 10 years from now, right, or just started to really look ahead, curious to learn more about the legacy that you want to leave and, you know, some of the experiences you want to make sure that you go through as you start to look ahead and look at the chapters that are to follow. So can you just talk to us a bit about, you know, what is that legacy that you want to leave? What's the imprint that you really want to have as you start to work your way through these next chapters? Jeez, you're really good at asking these big questions, aren't you? I mean, I, I, I don't feel like um, leaving a legacy feels like a, like a really grown up thing to be even thinking about. But I think one of the things that I know I'm most proud of when it comes to the people that I've worked with, my colleagues, my team, you know, but also people outside of work, friends, family, is helping people see that they can achieve a lot more than they think they can and i think if you're able to unlock that in yourself or you know if you're able to be inspired to do that through whatever motivates you that's a really powerful thing and whether i play a, a small part in that or not for the people around me that would be really cool because i think when you really look at it, you know, you generally can achieve a lot more than you set out to do. I think for most people, I think most people generally sort of set the bar lower than they perhaps can do. And it usually takes a few other people, or at least one other person to say, no, you can definitely do more. You can definitely achieve more. You should definitely push for more, you know, get more out of yourself sort of thing. And, and I'm sure the same applies to me as well, right? So yeah, I think if I, if there's one thing that I think I could leave the people around me, it would be, it would be that. Got it. Got it. And that point around, you know, removing limiting beliefs and really raising the bar in terms of what you can achieve and what you can go out there and do. How does someone go about doing that? You know, how have you gone about maybe removing that glass ceiling, if you want to call it that, that I think many people out there listening might be thinking, you know, they've got that self-limiting belief in their own mind. That's a, that's a really, that's a, that's a, that's a tough one because everyone's situation is different. So it's, I think it's just hard to answer, but I think a lot of it comes down to the things that you say to yourself. The person that you talk to most at any one point in time is yourself. <laughs> 
you're constantly doing it without even realizing it, right? You're having thoughts, you're saying things to yourself, whatever situation you might be in. So if you're able to change the things that you say to yourself, then then that becomes, I think, one of the first steps in readdressing what you see as your limitations and your barriers. Okay, that in itself isn't everything because you've actually, you know, ultimately you've got to get out there and do the hard work and put the mileage in. But I think if you start to just say to yourself, actually, no, I can do this, or someone says done this, why can't I do that? So that's a mantra that I will say to myself often, actually, for, for, for a long time. You know, if they can do it, why can't I? <laughs> so whatever works for you, whatever your mantra is, uh, or if you find it's not working for you right now, have a go at talking to yourself differently. And that might become, they might become of the first step in how you maybe go about trying to achieve your goals. Yeah, it goes into a lot of that self-talk, right? As you've been, uh, you know, highlighting there. I have this picture just above my bed of Muhammad Ali and the, the motto on it is impossible is nothing, right? And it's about, as you've highlighted, right, that self-talk the identity that you have for yourself, right? Being able to wake up and just consistently, you know, ingest things that allow you to believe you can go out there, you can realize your own version of greatness, whatever that is in this world. So I think surrounding yourself, whether it's with collateral people, role models, things that give you that sense of inspiration and that you can just run through walls, it's really important, right? Because if you surround yourself with the opposite, you're just going to become a mirror image of what you're surrounding yourself by. Becomes a massive limiting factor. Yeah, Absolutely. I think that's great. Yeah, Mahmoud Ali, great man. <laughs> my man, my man. <laughs> There's just really one last subject area I just wanted to explore with you here, Vinit, which is just your experience being an investor. You mentioned a seed investor and some of the, the younger businesses that you've been able to play some kind of role in or had enough confidence in to, to put some of your own capital into. So how did you get into investing and how do you then think about making a decision to actually go and put some money in and put your name behind some of these businesses? So I, a big theme, I think, with the investments that I've made today, uh, again, it was in a low-risk low situation before I had kids, right? <laughs> um, fortunate enough to have a bit of money saved up and, and I was a customer, actually, in pretty much every one of those startups, either before or as I was becoming a customer, I was like, oh, this is pretty neat. Like, maybe I can, maybe, you know, I want to find out a bit more. So that was a theme, actually. So I didn't actually proactively go out and find these investments. I happened to be consuming their products or their services as a consumer or as a B2B sort of customer. And in as part of doing my own due diligence as a customer, you know, just checking them out, looking at testimonials, seeing how they might be funded so they don't just, you know, fold up in, you know, two days' time. So, oh, this is interesting. They're quite early stage. Let's maybe let me just you know reach out to the CEO if I'm not already talking to them or one of the founders and see see what the next funding round is. And I've actually continued to do that with some other things that I've experienced. You know, like with with a boxed wine vendor recently, and then a, you know a few other bits and pieces. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned Hoffie earlier. There's another um, sort of similar conversation there. And I think I'm uh, just sort of um, creatively, I guess, using the same due diligence that I'm about to use in order to become a customer to then decide whether I want to put some of my own capital into backing that business. Because again, as a customer, you're going to check out sometimes some of the competition, some of the alternatives, right? So a lot of the things that you're doing as a customer, I think you're you're often doing as an investor as well. So that's kind of how I got into it. So 
by accident, like, you know, a lot of things in life, I guess. And one of the things that I gained from it by being involved in some of these smaller businesses was seeing how they operate and then taking some of their playbooks, swapping notes, all that good stuff and being energized, right? You know, we talked a bit about, you know, energy and what inspires you really being inspired and energized by how they operate. So every single startup that I've invested in, I've personally got a lot back in terms of like personal growth and professional growth. So even if I haven't necessarily like made an amazing return or I've had to write it off or whatever, I've definitely found I've got a lot back in return just by simply being exposed at an early stage to those founders, to those teams and what they're working on. And that's a, that's just been like fascinating. So I've been very fortunate that I've been able to do that in the first place, but I've, I've definitely tried to squeeze it for all it's worth and get the most out in return. I mean, yeah, that's just my own sort of um, personal story when it comes to seed investments, but they are really risky, you know, and, and with so much capital floating around, there are more and more startups, right? So it's harder to, even harder now, I think, to work out which ones are the ones to back. So if you are thinking of doing it or you think of doing it for the first time, again, terribly cliched, but don't expect to see that money come back if you're about to invest in it. So if that feels uncomfortable for you, probably don't do it. <laughs> it's a great piece of advice there, right? It's like uh, no different to placing a bet or a gamble, right? And that's and essentially it- what it is, right? You are basically taking a big punt on a bunch of people or one person with a new with an idea hoping to make waves in the world. The maths and history tells you they probably won't make it. Um, so if you're comfortable with that, then fine. But if you're not, then just hold hold tight, sit onto that money, <laughs> you know, just use it for something else, maybe. Strap up tight. It's a, it's a great one. So look, Vinit, we are going to come to the final question here now. And if you've watched any episodes and you know what's coming, but um, it's just to really ask you that if you were talking to that person out there who wants to go from good to elite level in their career, what's the best piece of advice that you'd give to that person? So I think we've touched on some of the things already. But the one that stands out for me the most is having an ability, developing an ability to improve and learn and improve. So however you want to do that, whatever is most comfortable for you, identify that and use it. So if that means, you know, getting feedback from your team or practicing in a safe environment or recording your calls and listening back to it, getting others to, to feedback, that's, that's been particularly valuable to me find it do it use it and keep doing it because no one no one in any walk of life muhammad ali included is born elite right they have to put in the hard mileage backstage where no one else is looking before that they before they get to the point where they are elite or like performing extremely well so and especially if you're and it doesn't matter whether you're early on in your career or really experienced it's invaluable and it will always it will always pay dividends. So do that, find a technique or a method that works for you and stick to it. I think those of us, and myself included, when we get a bit lazy, when we're not improving our game, when we're not looking at ways of bettering ourselves, that's when you start to see that degradation, right? In any in any aspect of your life. So I've not been exercising for a while and you know, it shows <laughs> and it will show up in, in other things. So yeah, that's what I would say. 
Awesome. Bennett, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming down and I hope you enjoyed being a part of the episode. Been really good fun. Thanks, Alex. Awesome. So I hope you all enjoyed watching. If you are watching this on YouTube, again, please be sure to smash that like button, comment, share and subscribe. And if you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms, we'd really appreciate that five star review. Once again, hope that you enjoyed it this week and we'll see you on the next one.